Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Tonight I have a guest back on. I have not had this gentleman on in quite a while, but he's always gotten fantastic reception whenever he's been on the podcast. So I feel like it's only right to bring him on for the topics that we're going to be going through tonight. But first and foremost, I mean, I already gave some thoughts last week about the James Harden-Ben Simmons swap, but seeing as though tonight I'm on with uh, another 76ers guy, we we, we got to break down a little bit of the trade before we get into the draft talk. But without further ado, CJ Marchesani is joining me from the step in and roll call. CJ, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm always happy to come on the pod. It's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Kevin. I'm excited to do this. Absolutely. So I wanted to leave with it, CJ. I, for one, I really didn't think a trade was going to happen. I, I, I really didn't. I know there were rumors swirling, rumors swirling, but usually when I get my hopes up for anything to happen, it's it's the exact opposite. That's That's like my life story. So I didn't think a trade was going to happen. But when it went down that afternoon, again, the trade we're referring to, as everybody should know by this point, Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, two first-round picks for James Harden and Paul Millsap. CJ, when that trade went down, what went through your mind when it happened specifically? So I'm with you. And leading up to the deadline day, I kind of assumed that nothing was going to get done. But it seemed like... I don't know, Eastern time, like 12 o'clock, 11 o'clock, the tide started to turn. And I was like slowly but surely like, oh my God, this might actually be happening. <laughs> like, there's a chance that this is real. I kind of assumed it was going to be an off-season thing or something like that. But no, I, I was just honestly really excited. I was excited that we got to do it without putting any of our long-term pieces in there. Um, I hate to see Seth go, but to do it for Seth Curry and a minimum, really, uh, when we're talking about on-court value this year, is pretty crazy in the middle of a two-, three-year championship uh, window that we think the Sixers probably have now. So do you think that James Harden is definitely going to be a superb running mate with Joel Embiid? I mean, we know how excellent the two are by themselves, and, and the more that I've thought about it, the more that I think they ultimately will be a clean fit, even going into the playoffs this year that I don't know if it will take that much time to adjust, but do you think their games are, are, are definitely properly suited with each other to, to make a deep playoff run even this year? Absolutely. I think that, um, honestly, I think it's a brilliant fit. A lot of people, when it first happened, kind of got caught up on the James Harden plays with a traditional rim runner fit, mm -hmm. you know? I think that's a pretty normal trope right now, but... I think that Joel is so smart that just because he's not going to be finishing with lobs off the pick and roll doesn't mean that him getting deep position off a of pick and roll and you having to worry about Harden too, like it's going to be a really deadly combination. And even Harden working off of Joel, like if you put him on the far side of the floor, yep. you can't you can't guard that. Like Joel is a natural drawler of double teams. You have to double him. There's maybe mm -hmm. three guys in the league that can hope to stand up one-on-one. -on -one. And then you have James Harden attacking off of the tilted floor. It's, it's a buck. There's just no, there's nowhere to hide. I think that the big swing factor for if this is a championship team this year is going to be if Tobias stays um, 
on the ball. If he's really moving the ball, attacking closeouts, putting up the open threes that he should be putting up instead of slowing the game down and all that stuff that he falls into when he's at his worst, I think that this is going to be a top three team in the league and we'll see where the chips fall. But I'm not worried about the fit between Joel and Harden at all, considering at their best, they're two top 10 players in the NBA and it's kind of hard to scheme that. Yeah, I try. I, I guess I tried to put on social media the more that I've been able to reflect since the first pod where I gave some thoughts on, on the specific trade. More so that it, it's not the fit of those two together. It's just making sure that we have the right pieces around them to be able to actually go out and, and compete for a championship. And that's why I was so bummed to see Seth Curry go. And and I, I know if, if we're really looking at this trade, Ben Simmons wasn't playing. He was essentially a zero asset. So in reality, you're making a swap like Harden for, for Curry and, and what Drummond was giving you off the bench. And obviously Harden's an upgrade over one of them or the combination of the two of them. But at the same time, we don't really have another weapon on the team kind of like Seth Curry. Um Korkmaz can, in theory, be that player. Danny Green, once upon a time, was a lot more mobile um, of a shooter as Curry was. Um, Maxi is, is, I, I don't know if he's really like somebody you want to be involving in, in, in handoff actions all the time. I mean, he's obviously been pretty decent at that in the NBA. He's gotten a lot better at different pick and roll actions. I still kind of see Maxia as more of like a, a transition threat when he's at his best. Um, another guy who can really get that whole attack to close out. Um, and he's been, like I said, he's been getting better in those handoff actions with Joel as he's been able to develop chemistry, but not, not in the same way as Curry. Curry was in, in the same way that, that Redick was really deadly in a lot of those actions. Curry was also very deadly in those actions. So like, do we need, another player like that or are we okay to kind of do like the your turn my turn offense with Joel and Harden and some stationary shooters like is that going to be enough like like do you do you, do you ultimately think the Curry loss is going to be a little more detrimental than we might think on its face or am I just completely overblowing and like what we have because those two are so great is going to be enough I think we're going to have to see when, when what they put on the floor. My initial thought is that it's going to be a step back for regular season play, for sure. Um, at least on the offensive end. You're going to feel the Seth Curry hurt a little bit. Joel loves that two-man game with Curry, like you mentioned. Yep. And really, he's, he's an excellent regular season player and an excellent basketball player. The issue is with Seth, and I think we saw it a little bit in the Atlanta series, is that even when he's getting you buckets in the playoffs. Teams hunt him out on the defensive end. He, he had a couple of Atlanta games where he, he put up 20, 25 points. He was really a key, crucial part of their offense. He, he, still, he was like the second best offensive player for them in multiple games. Absolutely, without a doubt. And then on the other end, the Hawks were just running actions at him every time. And I think that there's a decent chance that the offense takes a step, a step back. But for everything that Harden is on defense during the regular season. When he's locked in, he's not a negative defender that you can hunt. He's probably going to be the best option to hunt um, on the Sixers yep. team. Yep. But he's not a mismatch like Seth Curry is. And I don't think you're going to get the same amount of, like Seth just dying on screens and having no way to get over the screen because he's just not strong enough kind of thing. 
So I think that when the game slows down and when it really matters the most, I think that we, as much as I love Seth and he was a joy to have here in Philly for the two years that we had him, I think that we are going to um, have a, a stronger closing lineup with Harden and Embiid kind of doing the, you know, Harden and Embiid pick and roll, a little bit iso ball, stuff like that, that they're both extraordinarily efficient at. And they're good enough that they don't need to run crazy offensive sets that tend to work less in the playoffs. And the little bit of set that we lose in the playoffs on offense, I think we will gain on the defensive end. So I, I will miss Seth. He's one of my favorite Sixers from this last couple of years stretch. But I think as far as on the court is concerned, it's just, it's hard to under emphasize how huge of a net win just on talent it is to go from James yep. Hard or for, to go from Seth Curry to James Hard. And, and, and speaking of, speaking of defense, I, CJ, I need your help. I, I need you to get me more energized than I am about us keeping Matisse. And the reason why I say that is everybody's like, oh, but you, you're able to keep Matisse Dive on the deal. I'm like, that's great. Like, he's one of the better defensive playmakers that we have in the league. But I think everyone kind of wants to paint him as this, not only just this off-ball, this rover, this guy who can play passing lanes, uh, come up behind people, deflect the ball, poke it away, but also as like this this individual one-on-one ball stopper kind of defender. And like, he's not, he physically, he's not built that way. And I, I've never gotten that impression from Matisse. Like, I still think that we, we have one of the best defenders absolutely around the basket. When everything else about the play breaks down and we have one guy to essentially contest at the rim, we have one of the best guys who can actually do that in Joel Embiid. But we're st- I still think the 76ers are missing that premier individual one-on-one type of defender. And I- I've never bought that Matisse is that guy. Is-, is-, is he better? Is he the best option on the team to try to put on the other team's best player if they're not a, a post guy? Absolutely. But I still don't know if that's like – the premier type of defensive option that I still think this team needs to at least go try and bother somebody, you know, better bother somebody like a, like a Durant or, or a Giannis or whoever the case may be, whoever the top option is that the 76 is going to face in the Eastern conference. So maybe you do feel that Matisse is better equipped to be that guy as he continues to mature in his game. I, I don't know. Try, try, try and sell me on, on Matisse and why I might be overthinking it with him too and why I should be a little happier with, with, with the 76ers keeping him in the deal. I think that the – I think it's multifaceted. I think the upfront sell on Matisse over reportedly the two second-round picks that the Sixers gave up because that is what is reported to be in the deal besides Matisse. I think that just this year, next year – the year after is I think all that we are really looking at with this Harden and Bede court, like as yep. the championship, like it's time to go for it. I think Matisse is more impactful for a championship team than anybody that they're going to get at the late, in the late first round this year. And probably more impactful than the majority of people that they can get for just that 2027 pick alone. There's a chance that maybe they flip that 2027 pick for like an Eric Gordon 
or something like that. And maybe that's a little bit better use. But I, a, a scouting philosophy of mine that I translate over to pro ball and watch it guys develop is I bet on guys that I, or I try to, I want to bet on guys that think the game and process the game at such a high level to figure out the other stuff. I agree with you that he's not necessarily, he's more of a off ball defensive genius than he is like a stopper kind of in the way that Ben Simmons was more a off ball defensive genius than he was a guard, a point guard stopper, you know, but for both of those guys for their times in Philly, like you said, they were the best option. So I think we're going to see a lot of him on ball. And I think that the style of on-ball defense that he plays, which is a little bit more of a risk-taking style, and he, he does, he's dangerous from the trail position and stuff like that, it lends a lot to funneling guys into Joel Embiid. So while, yeah. while it, it may look like Matisse gets burnt, burnt or something like that when he's jumping. No, he, he does play those angles intentionally. You're, you're absolutely yeah. right about that. Yeah, so, so I, don't th- I think that he's a good fit for the team. I think that... The argument that I would take if I were anti-Matisse would be not that I would want to keep those two firsts. It would be, is there a player that for the next three years, which is where I'd have a little bit of the issue with the Eric Gordon thing and some of the one-year rentals, but was there a guy available on the market for our first this year and the 2027 first that would be more impactful for the three-year championship window than Matisse? And, I mean, I don't know that answer. I don't know who was available for that price. Um, I tend to think that Matisse is still on the upswing. I think he gets better year over year. I think he's a film junkie, a very hard worker, and he's improving playing off Joel, especially in the dunker spot, stuff like that. So I tend to bet on his development. But if you think that there is a guy that would help more that was available for the late 2022 pick and the protected 2027 pick, I would have a hard time arguing against that. My, my argument was more so, and, and obviously you and I were in the back room listening to the phone calls um, and, and the negotiations, but if, if it came down to we'll either take Curry in the deal or we'll take Matisse, I, 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 I really might have thrown Matisse in the deal if that option would have been given to me if I were Daryl Morey instead of Seth Curry because of the fit within the offense. And that's more so because... I would agree with you. I think I think if it came down to like Curry had to be in the deal regardless, so whether it was Matisse or you're potentially giving up the the draft assets, hundred percent. We're we're taking the proven commodity ten times out of ten, and e- even if the picks could have probably been even a little bit higher, let's say like they're projected to be in like the mid first round range, I- I'm still taking the the proven commodity Matisse Thybul to potentially go out and and win big games in the playoffs. That to me isn't an argument, but between those two particular players, I might've wanted to bet more on the offensive fit because I don't know how valuable ultimately Matisse is going to be defensively when we get down to like the conference semifinals and the conference finals where it likely has to be that guy to go and guard the other team's best perimeter player or best perimeter slash forward player one-on-one. I don't know. I don't know the results of that, but maybe your argument with, how he plays off of Embiid and how those two kind of work together defensively because of the angles that he takes. I mean, he plays his angles the way that he does because he's always trying to force a turnover. He's always trying to pickpocket somebody, get a deflection, get a steal. He's, he's, he's trying to do that almost all the time when, when he does end up in those on-ball type of situations. But 
I don't know. Maybe I'm just overplaying that. So we, would you 100% rather have Matisse than Curry? Man, and I'm thinking about it now because I, <laughs> I, I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm thinking this through before I say it. But yeah, I would if I could only keep one of the two. I think I'd rather keep Matisse. I think that a Harden Maxi Curry guard lineup with Tobias and or maybe Seth coming off the bench. I, I don't know. I think that really throws the roster into a bit of like a they have no wings area. And Seth, I have I have concerns with Seth in the playoffs, and I don't think that offense is going to be an issue when you have James Harden and you have Joel Embiid on the floor. I, I think that oftentimes offense wasn't a huge issue with Ben and Joe on the floor, even though it definitely should be with this level of Joe. And I think that any guys around James Harden and Joel Embiid is going to give you enough offense. Tobias Harris, Tyrese Maxey, sometimes Danny Green, sometimes Matisse is more than enough offense. And I think I value the wing depth and I wholeheartedly believe that Matisse could be more. Sure. And, and, and I guess it's, it's, it's more so I'm hoping that James Harden is able to be the excellent passing maestro James Harden that we've seen in different situations. And he's able to make some of those other guys better offensively. Like he's able to bring more out of Korkmaz who has struggled this year for, for reasons that I don't fully have the answers to, but his numbers are pretty much down across the board. Try to get more out of Matisse and get Matisse more involved as, as a cutter going to the basket, not just as a guy who we're, we're going to stick him in the corner because there's, there's not really much of anywhere else to be on the floor. Um, to, to maybe get creative with, with Tobias a, a little bit. You, we, we've seen Joel kind of be a floor spacer at times when him and Ben had to share the court, maybe put, like, put Harden and Tobias in, in, in different kind of like pick-and-pop type of actions or, or, or find, find handoff actions. Find ways to get Tobias involved as well um, other than just standing in the corner. I guess I'm more so betting on if Harden can be that for this team that he can get others involved and get the best out of them offensively, then I would agree with you that, that it's more important to have not only the wing depth, but also that potential defensive option, if it can actually play out to be that. So you're definitely betting on, it's not just the scoring brilliance of Harden and Embiid. You're also kind of betting on that. He can bring the best out of everybody else as well. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the best passers in the NBA. I, I think yeah. that, a lot of the way that he works makes him seem like an individual player and that kind of ball hoggy type. But he, unlike a lot of other ball dominant stars in the NBA, to me anyway, has never been a assist hunty kind of point guard. I even in those that. Rockets days when he, I'm sorry, even in those Rockets days when he was collecting a lot of assists, he wasn't like he, at his best, he just makes the right basketball play over and over and over again. And it's kind of like a relentless wear you down killer like that, where you can't make a mistake. If you take him away, he's perfectly happy to find the guys. And the question is, how long is he going to buy it? You know, it, how yeah. long is he going to want to be that guy? Because at his best, he absolutely is. And I think, I, I think if he truly is happy with this Philadelphia situation, and he, he looks at the locker room and sees like-minded guys like Joel Embiid and is playing for a like-minded GM like Daryl Morey who all want that first one, right? They're all going after the same goal. 
Nobody wants to be like on TV shows or anything like that. Everybody's grinding for a championship. I think if, if the locker room stays that way and he stays committed, then he is absolutely the elevate everybody else on the floor guy. And he, if he's truly a top 10 player, which we know he can be when he wants to be, then, um, then I don't think the offense is a question at all. I guess my last question for you about the trade is we, we talk about Andre Drummond and everybody likes to make fun of him, especially on social media all the time. But you, you, you do have somebody going out the door who's per 36 numbers at the time of when the trade went down, when I pulled these would uh, about 12 points per game, 17 rebounds, four combined stocks, four assists, like, per 36, like those, those are really, really good numbers to be putting up for a backup big man. And I guess we obviously Paul Millsap comes back in the deal. There's Paul Reed as well as Charles Bassey on the roster. Like, do you think the 76ers need to quote unquote replace that production or is it more so they just need bodies when Joel Embiid goes out to absorb fouls and kind of just like try and hold everything together. Like, do you think that's production that needs to, try to be replaced on like the buyout market or something like that? Or do you think, do you think the 76ers have enough with those three big guys to sort of come in, spell and deed and just try and like patch everything together and hold together as best as they can? I think that first of all, drum was awesome for the Sixers this year. If, yep. if there are people listening that didn't watch a lot of Sixers, which I can't blame you. I'm so glad you said that though. I'm so yeah. glad you said that. He really, he's taken a lot of slack, and I have given a lot of slack because bad Andre Drummond is a terrible <laughs> time to watch play basketball. Unengaged Andre Drummond. CC Los Angeles Lakers Andre Drummond last year. Yeah, it, Cleveland Andre Drummond. It's it's like the worst basketball that I you could ever wish on anybody. He, not unlike Dwight Howard two years ago, came in and he bought in completely to this team. And he was great. There, there was a bunch of like funky stuff that, you know, Drummond always looks a little bit funny when he's hooping, but he really was phenomenal. He's the best backup center that Joel's had in his time here. So mm-hmm. but before everything else, Drummond really was great. That being said, at the end of the day, he's a minimum contract backup center, a very, very good one. But James yeah. Harden has been turning lob threat centers into productive NBA players for as long as he's been in the league. I think Paul Reed is an interesting piece. As as much as I've not loved Bassey this year, I think that Bassey is the most interesting one with Harden in particular um, because of the lob threat and, and his size and length. And I think that you're going to see that a little bit if Doc wants to go to that bench. Um, Reed's a little undersized for some matchups, but I think that they have three guys play three very different styles of basketball. Absolutely. You just kind of mix and match with those three, uh, depending on what the matchup needs. When when we're getting into the playoffs and we're talking about the Eastern Conference semis, Eastern Conference finals, the games that actually matter, Joel's playing 38, 40 minutes a game. So we're trying to survive eight minutes. And in try, instead of trying to survive eight minutes, you know, out a guy that can be that dominant offensive threat, we haven't had that in the past. We're surviving eight minutes, and James Harden's going to be on the floor for all eight. He slows games down. It's not that many possessions. I don't even want them to get a big in the buyout market. I think that they would be better suited in some wing depth 
in there or, or a little bit more size um, on the wing, somebody that can muck up a couple possessions for, uh, you know, just, just dumb, like Corey Brewer five years ago or, or something like that, just to <laughs> muck up a couple possessions. Sure. I don't think that there's a big on the market that is going to be a, a notable increase from the guys that we have. And I would rather bet on the growth of Paul Reed or Charles Bassey or the intelligence of Paul Millsap than somebody that's just a run-of-the-mill, like, we know what we have in him. So I, I would roll with the big room, let James Harden work his magic in the eight minutes that Joel's not playing once the playoff games start to matter. And um, it, it won't be quite as good as Drummond's minutes will, would have been, but I think that they'll survive them quite well. And... I can't wait to watch Joel Embiid. I, I love that the Brooklyn Nets' plan for matching up with Embiid was Drummond. I think it's poetic and hilarious. I can't <laughs> wait to see it. Yeah, I, I, I think we know who's gonna who's gonna dominate in, in in that matchup. I guess we can we can kind of leave that comment there. Um, I will say to your point about Bassey, CJ. I I was a Bassey guy before the draft. Um, I, I thought he was always going to be an interesting second round type of flyer for somebody to take. We know that he, he did not end up going early second round. His contract situation was a little bit of a mess, but they got him in. And I saw him, I mean, obviously, like I said, I was a fan of him before the draft. I saw him, I was just out of Delaware to scout G League Ignite a few weeks ago, and I saw him there, and, and he was looking great there. We know that Paul Reed has certainly had some bright spots playing in and out of the Sixers lineup um, when, when he's been playing in Philadelphia. I just I don't know what I'm I don't know what I'm gonna get from Paul Millsap. I feel like I haven't watched Paul Millsap play legitimate basketball in a very long time. I don't know what I'm gonna get from him, but at the same time, he is a veteran who has had a, a long and very productive career. So we should absolutely give him the benefit of the doubt, especially when he's he's kind of like the third or fourth player in that big rotation that we have to count on. It's not like we're asking him to be like a 32-minute-a-night starter anymore. So I will give that rotation the benefit of the doubt. We will see how it plays out. I, I'm i like you. I'm very excited to see James Harden on the court with all the pieces. I never thought that I would have James Harden playing for my hometown basketball team. I never thought that I would be able to root for James Harden in that sense. But – I mean, shoot, man! Everything with the Philadelphia 76ers is just the the wildest roller coaster that you could possibly throw yourself on as a fan. And so this is just the next this is just the next entry in that book, man. We're we're just we're we're in for a wild ride. I can't wait to see how it plays out. I guess he's going to be playing after the All Star break. There, the the Sixers are are getting drubbed by the Boston Celtics as we record this podcast right now. So they definitely need him, but we'll see. I, I, I needed to get your thoughts, though, on that trade before we talked about what we actually planned to discuss tonight, which this kind of came up, CJ, because I've been seeing you post, obviously, first of all, if anybody out there isn't following CJ on Twitter, please, please plug your Twitter handle really quick because everybody needs to be following what you're doing. I'll explain that in a second. First name, last name, at CJ Marchesani. So... The reason why you absolutely need to follow CJ on social media is because he does incredible draft work. He has multiple different models that he uses, statistical models to actually break down draft prospects. And 
he always comes to the table whenever he's putting up an argument for a player, not only with film as an evidence, but he also brings forth every all of the work he does behind the scenes. And he's been coming to the conclusion for quite a while now that Shep Holmgren is the number one overall prospect in the 2022 NBA draft. And the race for number one, in my opinion, has certainly been fluid. I think the, the preseason favorite in the majority of people's eyes, if it wasn't Chet, then it was Paolo Bancaro. Then we had Jabari Smith enter the race. We had a lot of people actually update their boards to put Jabari Smith in number one overall. But some people in no ceilings have stood pat with Chet Holmgren at number one overall. I've kind of danced back and forth between Chet and Jabari. Now, I will say that on this podcast, if you are a, a frequent listener of this show, I've said that I refuse to put Chet lower than two on a board. And in the latest 3.0 update I just dropped last week, I did move Chet back at number one over Jabari Smith. And CJ, I just want to give you the floor really quick to kind of set the scene for where you had Chet before the season, if he was your number one overall pick, and why have you maintained course that he should be the number one overall pick in this draft? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I entered the season with Paolo number one, and okay. it wasn't a overwhelming one. But I, I tried to come in like open mind, you know, I, I, I didn't have a, wasn't a Kane in this class or a guy that I thought could go coast to coast. This was always going to be a little bit of a battle for number one. And Paolo's relative disappointment over the first month and a half of the season, I think kicked the door wide open for Jabari to jump up and Chet and Jaden Ivey and just everybody to kind of stake their claim. Somewhere around, I don't know, mid-early December, someone would have to check my notes for me. I, <laughs> I think Chet just kind of took his game from already phenomenal to just clearly he figured out the college game, right? You, you kind of alluded to this. I try to be the middle ground between stats and analytics and all that stuff yep. and film. I watch a ton of film. I do a ton of stat analysis and I try to keep my, my thoughts uh, like on both sides. I try to stay right in the middle and back up anything that I'm thinking from either one side or the other and go at it both ways. Chet blows you out of the park if you go from an analytics standpoint or if you watch the thing. If you just throw on a game, Chet is seven foot one, pulling the ball off the defensive glass, bringing it up court. And going behind the back at half court and then, like, going into a hesitation move and hitting a pull-up three. <laughs> it is ridiculous. He's shooting, like, 73 or something percent uh, of true shooting percentage. His numbers at the rim are outrageous. He's shooting 46% from three, which is not a – there's a little bit of variance stuff in there. You wouldn't expect him to be a 45% shooter in the, in the league. We have to manage expectations a little bit. But yep. – I do feel very confident in his shooting ability overall because of the volume of threes he's getting up, his touch around the rim, and the fact that he's getting self-created three-point shots at seven foot one. It's really crazy. On top of the fact that he's a top three rim protector in college basketball and deters everything. So 
he's a he's crazy when you watch the film. It, it, it passes the sniff test, if you will. And then you pull up the stats, and you're like, okay, well, maybe he's one of the best prospects that has come out in the last 10 years. I, I always just throw BPM as just like a quick benchmark. I, I don't think BPM should be taken as a like Bible verse or anything like that. It's just kind of like a where roundabout does this guy stack up in the class? And I've been updating this number like every two weeks with Chet because every two weeks it gets even crazier. The only two guys since 2010 when BPM started being a stat for college basketball players to have a higher freshman BPM than Chet Holmgren are Zion Williamson and Anthony Davis. Yep. The next two names are Carl Anthony Towns and Evan Mobley, great players in their own right. Chet has a higher true shooting percentage than Zion, who I don't know if you've heard, was very efficient. <laughs> it's it's really, really just he has figured out the college game and is ready to go pro. And I think that I went from Paolo number one to Paolo and Chet relatively equal to Chet slightly edging him out to Chet is in a tier of his own very quickly over the course of maybe eight weeks because every time I put on a game and every time I updated my model and every time I checked his stat profile, he had somehow upped the ante again. So uh, that was a very long-winded way of saying I'm very in that. Um, I think Tyler's a great prospect too. Obviously, Jabari Smith and Jaden Ivey and AJ Griffin all have earned their right to be talked about as one of the top prospects in this draft. But I would be shocked at this point if any of them caught Chet for me because really you just don't see very many prospects like him come around. I, I don't know if we've, we've ever seen anybody quite like him could come around when you factor in some of um, his physical attributes, which do give concern to, to others. But that was one stance I took very early on in this evaluation process was that I was not going to let his body scare me away from everything that he brings to the table. Some of it very unique. Like you mentioned his fluidity moving up and down the court, his comfort level, handling the ball and transition, some of the moves that he's able to go to. I mean, I've had Tyler Rucker on this podcast multiple times when he was able to see him live kind of like warming up. And he always talks about some of the shots that he was seeing Chad practice. And it's just like, how can you watch this guy and not, want to put him number one overall and just to kind of give my audience an update because i i haven't talked about chet really at length on this podcast for quite a while i've tried to branch out to some of the other players but since january started he's been averaging 16.4 points per game 10.4 rebounds 67 percent from the field 57 and a half percent from three-point range 79 percent from the free throw line and he's still averaging um over three blocks a game that level of production is ridiculous. And then you throw in, when you look at some of the synergy percentiles for him, at least on the offensive end, he's in the 99th percentile in terms of total offense, 99th percentile on offensive rebounds and putbacks, 97th in transition, 92nd on cuts, 82nd on post-ups, 63rd on spot-ups. When you factor in isolations as well as post-ups, including passes, he's in the 87th and 83rd percentiles, respectively. I'll come back to those points in a second. Um, 69th percentile on jumpers. You mentioned the, the finishing around the basket. 
um, CJ in the half court. He's at the 100 percentile finishing around the basket, 66 on catch and shoot shots. And when you do talk about some of the jump shooting, really where he likes to make his his bread and butter, um, at least he did at the beginning of the year was like shooting as a trailer big and he's currently nine of 15 from the field on on shots as, as the trailing big man so you really start to put together what this dude brings to the table on the offensive end let alone everything we could talk about him about him on the defensive end what really can't he do on the court to be perfectly honest and i saw somebody on twitter ask a question today can chet average 20 plus points per game in the nba I start to to think about it, CJ. I'm like, why can't he? And the reason why I say that is because, obviously, if Chet was trying to manufacture all of his points by being or trying to be more physical than everybody else, we might see that as a little bit of a problem once he gets to the NBA level. He's not going to be playing bully ball against anybody, at least certainly not early on in his NBA career but he manufactures so many easy buckets from off-ball play types, from catch-and-shoot shots, finishing in transition, going up, getting offensive rebounds because he he gets up pretty quick off the floor, at least quicker than you'd expect, and he has the ridiculous length. Like, you, you, you start to think about how could he get to 20 points per game. Well, if he's getting to the line like three to four times per game, that's that's probably like, like three to four points. If he's able to hit, you know, about, about – one to two three-pointers per game. That's anywhere from three to six points. Then you talk about how many easy finishes he's likely to get in an up-and-down NBA game in transition. That might be three to four more buckets right there. And then anything else he can give you in the half court, or if he does get in those situations where he's able to size you up with a functional handle at 7-1 and take you off the bounce, he's probably adding in a few more buckets that way. So it's like, we might not think of Chet as this dominant offensive player from a scoring perspective because he doesn't do it in the eye-popping traditional ways like a Paolo Bencaro or to some extent even a Jabari Smith when, when Jabari's hitting these highly contested mid-range fadeaways um, with, with like two plus hands in his face. But just how Chet reads the game how he sees the floor, how he's able to fit in with virtually anything Gonzaga is doing. I don't know, man. I, I don't know how you could bet against somebody who is this incredibly efficient and does it in incredibly efficient ways from getting to those types of levels in, in the NBA. Do you have any other thoughts to kind of chime in as what you would expect from him from a scoring standpoint in the NBA? Yeah, I think you touched on it a little bit at the end. I think that he is a basketball savant. He understands and processes the game at such a high level. And you could see it if you watch over the course of Gonzaga. I think the first month at Gonzaga, he was not used to being played with another big that needed to operate in the space that he usually operates in. He was adjusting to Drew Timmy. Um, he, he wasn't, he was in a new situation, right? Like all the stuff that happens to freshmen, that happened to Paolo. It's just yep. stuff that happens. And within six weeks, he solved it. And since that point, he's been the best player in college basketball. Not the best freshman. Best player in college basketball since six, about six weeks into the season. So I think the sell for Chet scoring at the next level is he's going to figure it out. He's a basketball genius. And he has all these physical tools and all the movement ability. He's faster than those guys that are going to want to guard him on the perimeter um, from, a, like, from the big guy's standpoint. 
and he hits those threes and the beautiful touch he exhibits around the basket. All of that stuff is important. But it's so much easier to bet on when you when you have the film of him getting put in a situation that he, he didn't really necessarily understand how he was going to score his points because it was different than every other situation he's played in. And to watch him in real time solve that problem and not just solve it, but solve it in such a dramatic way that he's the most efficient scorer in college basketball, it just gives you faith that when he's drafted and he's going to that next situation, going to solve that too because good players transcend situations. And I think that Chet Holmgren is a type of great player that could truly transcend situation and adapt to whatever they need him. And, and, and you use the term basketball savant, CJ. I'm glad that you did because that brings me back to that point. I, I wanted to come back to those two play types in particular that I mentioned, isolations including passes and, and post-ups including passes. Just when you watch this man – either operate in, in half-court situations or even in transition for that matter, his comfort level keeping his head up and consistently looking, reading the court and looking to get others involved. And then some of the passes that he's actually able to make. Like it, it's one thing like that we do have big men who are absolutely smart in, in their own right and they can read the floor and, and, and they can see when to make a pass, but not – not every single big man has the same level of touch passing the basketball that somebody like Chet does. Chet makes some ridiculous dimes if you actually throw on the tape. And is he averaging like five, six, seven, eight assists a night? No. But that's A, that's not what Gonzaga is asking him to do. He's primarily being asked to finish a lot of easy plays. They're not putting the ball in his hands for him to work out of a lot of playmaking type of situations all the time. But when he does, he really excels at it. I absolutely love some of the passing vision and some of the passing touch that I've seen from him in different situations. And CJ, this is, I don't know if this is going to end up being like the perfect segue into like Jabari Smith, for example, but like I flip on the tape, I watch Chet operate as a passing big man and he can do anything I would certainly want him to do. And then you add in some of the stuff he does in transition that you talked about at the top. He's absolutely ridiculous. You watch Jabari operate in some of those same situations. He He's not a bad passer, but especially in transition, it's like if he tries to, to, hit, to get somebody on a hit-ahead in transition, it, it's generally a turnover. You, you can obviously tell that when Jabari is trying to handle the ball in transition or he's trying to make, make plays for others, um, getting downhill, there's just, there's just points where the game, I think, is moving a little too fast for him. You never see the game moving too fast for Chet. Um, and, and that's really been a big takeaway for me in terms of slotting him back up at number one. Um, what, what are some of your comments about his passing and, and, and what he brings to the table from that standpoint versus some of the other prospects that we could talk about in this race? Yeah, I think it goes back to that same thing. He just understands the game at such a high level, right? So he knows, just like on the defensive end, he knows where the ball needs to go. He makes the right pass. He's a creative passer for sure but he knows where it's where it needs to go. And the underrated part of Chet's passing is, or passing in general really, is you need to be a threat on other spots on the floor on offense to draw the defense's attention to make those passes, right? Yeah. And Chet brings that. He, I, I think it's, it's 
it also connects to Jabari because we think of Jabari and we think of this like mid-range assassin, which he definitely is. He yep. shoots over everything. It, it's his elite skill in this draft. But Chet is shooting like 39-something percent on long twos, not even threes, like long twos, which are often self-created. And the fact that that is now becoming part of the game, his game and the three-point shot is a part of the game and he's the most efficient finisher of the rim in college, it just creates so much attention on him that the margin for error on the passes gets that little bit bigger. He has extra eyes on him. He's drawing extra attention. He's causing people to collapse on him. And he's smart enough to understand where not only his team is going to be, but where the defense is rotating to make the right pass. I, I think you said it perfectly. He he isn't like a Nikola Jokic or something where, where he's like, or polo palming the ball or anything like that. But he's a very dangerous passer for a 20 or what, a 20 year old, 19 year old, mm-hmm. because he, he, in the same way that Jokic does, he is always under control. And he turns the ball over a little bit, trying to force the issue and trying to use his strength, which isn't there. But when he sits back and lets the game come to him and takes his time, He's very under control and can control the whole offense in a way that you don't see very many big men in college or very many big men in pros able to. Yeah, his his offense, I think at this point, has become a little underrated. And some people might point to, well, his numbers have upticked in January and February, but look at the competition he's playing against. Like, if you, if you pop on the film and you've watched enough college basketball over the years. You've attempted to scout for the NBA draft for long enough and get an understanding of what translates going into the league and what doesn't. You can pick out things on film that you know are immediately translatable skills and how this is going to work in in the NBA, regardless of some of the competition level he's playing. And even when he didn't play some of the quote-unquote cupcakes on the schedule, he has still actually played pretty well. Um, and, and we also have to keep in mind, like you said, like he's a freshman doing everything that he's doing and he's put together the most complete season uh, of any player in college basketball up to this point. And in, in my opinion, I think you echoed that a little bit as well. Let's just, let's hit on some of the defense. Cause I think when you're talking about Chet Holmgren, that's usually, if you're listening to a podcast like this, it's usually the first thing that comes up. Oh my gosh, he's, he has these massive, massively long arms. He's this really tall human being, like. He, he's an incredible shot blocker. It's not just the, the length and the size. It's he has these excellent instincts around the basket to be able to make the play. He's quick off the floor. All those things have been talked about, CJ. But you know what? You know what hasn't been talked about? It's something I don't hear people talking about enough, especially with big men. Given Chet's body composition, you would think that players would be able to attack him better than they have. And get him in foul trouble a lot more often than he's been in. And you know what? This dude's only averaging 2.2 fouls per game on the year. Given how concerned everybody has been about his body, his physical stature, how he's going to hold up playing against bigger players on a more consistent basis, how is he going to be uh, the, the last line of defense for a team if he's constantly fouling out of games or he's unable to handle the physicality of the game, I would have expected to see his fouls up certainly over three personal fouls per game at the very least. 
I would have really thought he'd be getting in much more dangerous waters in terms of his foul rate. But yet, he doesn't foul. He does get pushed off his spots, yet he's somehow usually able to make a play on the ball regardless. Like, I've never seen a big man get pushed off of his spot so many times in the post, yet still find a way to come up with a play on the ball. That is incredibly rare, but he's not fouling guys either. He's so smart in what types of angles he plays, the types of battles he chooses to fight. The only way you get better at playing basketball is playing basketball and staying on the court to be able to do that. And he's been a very consistent presence on the court for Gonzaga all year long. And I find that um, incredibly encouraging for what I could ultimately expect from him at the NBA level. Now, am I still going to project him as an NBA five? I'm probably not. I think he's much better off playing the power forward spot, similar to how Evan Mobley's playing power forward next to Jared Allen in the NBA. I don't know where, where that type of a fit is ultimately going to be at at the top of this draft. We don't know the order, but um, that, that was kind of a blessing in disguise for Mobley to go to a situation like that with Jared Allen. I think um, Chet's going to need the same thing, but it's just we, we talk about some of the things with Chet's defense, but I don't think what I just mentioned, CJ, has been talked about or, or brought up enough. What, what are some of the things with his defense that have also really caught your eye and have maybe surprised you in ways other than the more traditional ways that we talk about Chet? Yeah, you're right. And I think that, I, I mean, I know I'm beating this to death, but it comes down to his genius, right? He, he doesn't jump at pump fakes. He's getting better at that. He, he gets his hands on the ball in all the right points, and he handles himself around the rim very well. And I think it ties back to the Sixers thing we did at the beginning, where there's more than one way to protect the rim and there's more than one way to play defense and there are guys that protect the rim by taking up a ton of space and there are guys that protect the rim by being excellent leapers and, and blocking shots chet's brand of protecting the rim is both in his dissuasion of anyone getting even close to the rim because of how long he is and how much space he takes up and in the subtle abilities for him to use his length even when he's outstrength exactly as you mentioned, and the correlation to the Sixers is the Thibel thing that we talked about at the beginning, right? Where a lot of times, if you just turn on a Sixers game and you're not familiar with his game, like, wow, this is the best defender, one of the best defenders in the NBA, he gets blown by a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But he's really comfortable playing from behind the ball, and he plays the game in a way that is different from how most guys defend, and doesn't look like good defense because it's not how it's not what we stereotypically define as good defense. And Chet does a lot of the same thing. Typically, when we see a guy on the post getting bodied a little bit, we're like, okay, he's a bad post, right? Can't handle himself down there. Chet adapted where it his post defense and his rim defense is not. He allows himself to get bumped off the ball because he has to. He's not a strong guy. But he keeps himself so well-balanced, and his hand placement on shot attempts is the best that I have ever seen, where he can take two, three bumps and still be right where he needs to be to contest the shot, block the shot, and contest without fouling. And he does the same thing on drivers, where he can just keep moving, keep moving, and you feel like you're putting him under the rim. 
the last second, his hands on the ball because he has been doing this for so long and he has such a understanding on not only what he needs to defend the rim and to defend the post, but how his body impacts. And I, I think that he has just mastered that in such a unique way that it doesn't necessarily look like good defense, but it's just another level of genius, if you will, in, in how he handles himself on the basketball court. So I, I think that a lot of it is just maybe reestablishing how we watch the game and remembering that just because rim protector X in the NBA, who's a great rim protector, does it this way, doesn't mean that it's the only way to do it and be effective. And I think Chet is a great reminder of that. That was, that was quite the comment that you hit everybody with at the end, my friend. That, that was an excellent breakdown uh, about Chet, but also I, I really like that, just kind of getting us to, to rewire a little bit how we watch the game of basketball and be a little more open-minded in that there are multiple approaches you can take to accomplish a certain objective on the basketball court. It all doesn't have to be the, the same exact thing every single time we watch it. Just because you're playing one style or doing things one way doesn't mean there's not another way to do it. I, I agree with that uh, 100%. And, and, yeah, man, Chet, Chet is so, so good. I God, I, I really didn't think that I'd be projecting anybody to potentially be in a tier of, like, the highest level of tiers that I could possibly project a player to be in. But Chet is getting pretty dang close to forcing my hand at putting him as like a tier one type of prospect. I thought that this collection of three guys would be in like a tier two, but yeah, Chet, Chet is, is changing the conversation. As you say, you're updating your stat, your stats like, like week over week over week and trying to keep up with his numbers. Like, yeah, he's, he's literally upping the bar week to week to week. Um, and it's made this race for number one, incredibly fascinating. I, I, I will be very curious as to who actually goes number one overall in this draft because there are technically two other guys that, that, that we can talk about that are in this race. And I, I know I, I put a lot of time into Chet Holmgren because I really haven't, hadn't done a deep dive on him on this podcast for a while, kind of like I said. But there are two other names. There's Jabari Smith. And then there's Paolo Bencaro, who, you know what, Paolo... As you said, CJ, he had a lackluster start to the season. Not, not that he was a bad player on the court, but in terms of overall expectations for what we generally want a number one pick caliber of player to look like on the court, I don't think that he overwhelmingly exceeded those expectations. And it's sort of why that door sort of opened up for some of these other players to, to crack in and, and, and maybe jump ahead of him. Um, but... In ACC play, I think he's he's found himself a little bit. Um, he's been averaging 17.4 points per game, 9.8 rebounds, 3.1 assists, uh, over a block a game, 47% for the field. The, the three-point number has not been good all year. It's at 29.8% in conference play. It's 31.6% overall in the year. The free throw shooting hasn't necessarily been great either, but overall on the year, he's still at um, 76%. But I've talked about this with other people. I don't know how good the three-point shot necessarily needs to be with Paolo for him to 
reach the type of ceiling that I think he could hit. I think as long as he's enough of a threat in certain situations to knock them down, I think that's really what he needs. I mean, everybody talks about the, the, the stutter rip move. His bread and butter is really getting somebody off balance off the dribble, whether it's and then, and then whether it's going to like this pull up mid range type of shot or it's getting all the way to the basket. Like he does what he can do to get get defenders off balance and then make life easier for him inside the arc. A lot of his game is isn't predicated on outside the arc, kind of like how Chet has become this really awesome trailer shooting big man or this catch and shoot threat. Jabari has also been, in similar fashions, more of a catch-and-shoot type of guy um, in, in half-court situations, but he also has a game that's been really predicated on the three-point shots. Not the same for Paolo. Um, when, when you evaluate Paolo's offense inside the arc, he, obviously the Carmelo Anthony comparisons are thrown around a little bit. That That's the type of star power that he brings. It's just I think his game is more appeasing to watch for those who are looking for that that box office type of scoring threat on the offensive end, like Jabari and Chet don't always look the same way that, that Paolo does. So given that his production, in my opinion, he's done a few other things on the court that maybe, maybe we'll get into with him. Um, some improvements that I've noticed as the year has gone on. Has he sort of rebounded in the conversation in, in your eyes? Has he definitely come back in, in more of your favor as the year has gone on? So Paolo is still very much in the conversation for me. I think Chet really took hold of the number one spot, but Paolo is still two. And one of the reasons I liked him pre-college sample is because of his work as a passer and manipulating the floor and finding his teammates and being a really proactive passer, not necessarily reactive. First six weeks at Duke, he didn't have that. And so it was good to see him work back a little bit into the Paolo that we saw in high school, and he's been better. But I also am pretty bullish on his three-point shot, actually. His free-throw shooting numbers are good. He's taken a ridiculous 125 um, far twos per Bart Torvik. He's made 40% of them. And I, I think that he doesn't necessarily, obviously, have the defensive um, pull that Chet does. But on the offensive end, I've been really enthused with what he has done over the last month or two. And I, I would say that as solid of a one as I have Chet right now, I think Paolo is a pretty solid two for me. So is Jabari Smith the third player then in your top three, or do you have somebody else? I think push comes to shove right now, I'd probably go Jabari. Um, although Jaden Ivey and AJ Griffin are both guys that I really like. Ivey for everything he's done in the last two months and Griffin for everything he did before he went to Duke. Uh, he was my, one of my favorite prospects coming into this class. Um, my, my concern with Jabari, not that it's necessarily a concern as much as it's a limit, is I don't think he is the same kind of game processor as Jabari, or as Chet is on both ends, and Paolo is on the opposite. I said at the top of this, I really value that intelligence and processing because I think that it allows for outlier growth in other areas. It was one of my favorite things about Franz last year was that I thought on both ends, he really understood the game at a high level. And I think that leads to upside that you don't necessarily see. I don't think Jabari, I don't think that's something that can be taught. And I don't think that Jabari has it. And he's a phenomenal play finisher. He's a great shooter and all of that stuff. But 
that does worry me a little bit uh, about Jabari. And it's part of the reason why I don't have him breaking into the top two. So he's really struggled in SEC play compared to where he was in terms of shooting efficiency. He, he, it's not like he was setting the world on fire, finishing over 50% of his shots from the field overall at any point in the year. But he's taken a little bit of a dip from the field overall. He's at 40.6% versus SEC competition. He's down to 33.9 from the three-point line as opposed to he was, he was rocking like the mid-40s on three-point percentage. For quite a while, he's even down in free throw shooting a little bit. He's at 74.5% um, in, in SEC play. I think his struggles have only further highlighted some of the concerns that people have had for him, questioning him during this process. Are we sure he's a number one overall caliber pick? In that he is not this incredibly amazing self-creator off the bounce, right? He, he's, he, can, he can dribble, but he can't handle. Um, he, he's, mm-hmm. he's not incredibly ambidextrous. He, he doesn't have all of these, these killer crossover moves and these combination dribble moves. He's sort of like pounding the ball with his right hand as he's bringing it up the court. And he, he has control over the ball when he's doing it, but that's about as much as, uh, as you're getting to him. Maybe, um, when he has time to, to size somebody up and somebody's not hounding him on the defensive end, maybe he'll, he'll hit you with an occasional crossover and then he'll go into some sort of pull-up move. But essentially everything, like you said, CJ, he's he's a mid-range killer. He's a pull-up artist. He's a play finisher. In SEC play, it seems like every team is consistently doubling him immediately off the catch. And when he's doubled, all he really knows how to do at this point is try and, and, and use some sort of a combination of footwork as well as just his naturally high release to just shoot over defenders and, and, and try his best to put the ball in the basket. Um, I, I don't really see as much of the same passing that we saw from him earlier in the season when he was in a lot more one-on-one situations. Essentially, when he's doubled, it's not even that he's able to get the ball out of his hands quickly and, and, and make a play off of that. It's, it's generally he's, he's forcing up a shot. And I think that does go back to some of what you were talking about, CJ, and that you're not sold on his ability to process the game at a, at a quick and a high level quite yet, potentially not to the same level as somebody like a Chet or a Powell. I do think that that's definitely played into, played into the struggles on top of just how defenses are scheming against him um, now that they have better scouting reports on him. Like, is some of that going to change? or NBA teams going to be able to do that when he gets in the league? Like, they're probably not going to be able to double in the same way in the NBA as they are in college, but I do think it's a combination of, of all three. But my question, I guess, to, for, for you about Jabari is, do you think he needs more of that off-the-dribble type of self-creation to justify being a top three pick or can he be a special enough weapon as sort of the, the standstill type of shooter that he is right now shooting over defenses the way that he does? I think that the key part of that question is the to be a top three pick, right? I think yes. as far as expectations for Jabari Smith go, the worst thing that happened to him is Paolo struggling at the beginning and him absolutely lighting it up because it brought him from where the framing was as a top eight guy that was succeeding and could push his way into the top five, you know, to a people all of a sudden vaulted him to number one on the boards. And then he's all of a sudden going against those expectations. I think if at the beginning of his season and the end of his season were kind of flipped, 
everybody would be really excited about a prospect that is probably better off going sixth, fifth or sixth in this draft. And the framing would be very different. You know, I, I think that, yes, he needs more to, to return value as a top three pick. But his special shot making and his defensive versatility at the four is going to make him a really productive NBA player. I don't have any yeah. doubts about that. I think that he's going to fit his role in the league, and I think he's going to be a good basketball player, and I think he's going to contribute to winning. I just think the slow start from the other number one guys and his rampant start really anchored him at the top of everybody's board, and it makes him feel a little bit disappointing as a potential one guy instead of exciting as a top seven guy that you feel really good about. You now, you know, I think that there's a, a big framing issue with Jabari Smith that probably isn't going to get solved because we run away with stuff like that and first impressions last forever. But I, I have justified a lot of his placement for me as just trying to separate the order of the things that happened and more just look at the actual games and events that happened and, you know, scout that prospect. No, you don't scout the narrative. So... To kind of close out this podcast a little bit, CJ, we've talked about Chet. We mentioned Paolo. We talked about some of our concerns with Jabari that have popped up. And then you mentioned the other two names who are also number four and five on my board right now, respectively, in, in Jay Nivey and AJ Griffin. Um, if one of those two were to crash, not – not necessarily like what we start seeing on major media outlet boards, but if one of those two were to crash into the top three on your board and make one of those other guys fall, which one of those two do you think it, it, you would ultimately move up, Jay Nivey or AJ Griffin? Ooh, that is a that is a question that I've been asking myself a lot this last week, especially <laughs> my um, myself myself included. Man, listen, I but before you answer, I was so tempted to move A.J. Griffin up even past Jaden Ivey on my most recent board. I, w- I, was, I was this close to doing it, my friend. So it, it is a hard question. Yeah, and, and I have them currently flipped the other way. I have A.J. Griffin 4, Ivy 5. Okay. Honestly, I think that there's a chance that they both pass Jabari for me by the end or one or the other. Maybe Jabari ends up 4, but it's tough. The, the issue for me is pre-college, I was all the way in on A.J. Griffin. I love his high school film. So the stuff that he's doing now at Duke is flashing me back to what I know that he can be and the high field, the athleticism, the ridiculous shooting. It, it's just like a total package kind of guy and the kind of guy that I like to buy into. And Ivy, I started the season out lower on him. And I have always been tailing just the tiniest bit behind on his ranking. I'm not down on him by any means, but if when when consensus had him seven, I had him nine. When consensus had him five, I had him seven kind of thing. And it's getting harder for me to justify that because of the growth curve. I think that I, I came into the season with a lot of questions about uh, Jaden Ivey. And as he started blowing up in the first two months, I had a lot of questions about him. Could he change pace? Is he going to be an effective enough distributor? What does he do when his first step and explode is taken away from him? You know, what are his counters? And every Purdue game I put on, he flashes something else that he wasn't showing at the beginning of the year. 
And a lot of scouting is growth curve, right? And and seeing a yeah. guy improve like this in real time is is really putting pressure on Jabari and on AJ Griffin on my board. So I I hate to do this, but I don't have an answer for you right there. Honestly, <laughs> I, I think I think that both of them might pass Jabari. I think that maybe Jabari holds them off. Maybe one of them does, but I I don't know, and I'm really anxious to continue to dive into all three of their games and see where they land on my final board because it's very close right now. As far as Jane and Ivy is concerned, um, you, you mentioned some of like the, the, the start, stop, change of pace type of stuff. Obviously, everybody's questioned um, his passing ability, his vision, his willingness to be the type of a playmaker. Is he capable of being that, that definite point guard option where you're able to throw him into a bunch of pick and rolls and he's able to create up everything? I, I think the answer to those questions in terms of his playmaking for others are actually yeses. The thing that comes back to me with Ivy that I just had, I've, I've had concerns about from the start is he really does not have a pull-up jump shot. And I think when he gets to the NBA, in, in some respects, I think the NBA game is going to be much better suited for him because of the spacing. He's going to be able to get downhill more often off that initial screen. But at some point, defenses do figure out how to play you if they know you're exclusively going downhill and you need to have that pull-up type of jump shot, especially if you're a guard, um, running those actions heavily. And and are, are you as concerned about the pull-up jump shooting aspect of his game as I am? Is that the thing that would maybe hold back putting him above some others that, for, for you? Yeah, it's a concern. And his shooting has, early in the year, he was hitting everything. The pull-ups, like anything he threw at the rim was going in. And I think he's felt he's fallen off of that just a touch. Um, I think that the pull-up jump shot is an important play for him, but it's it's tough because he doesn't need to be that good because he's so explosive. He yep. just needs the threat of it. You know, he doesn't need to be hitting pull-up jumpers or a game at thirty whatever percent. You know, he just needs to he can't be played off of like guys used to do to Ben Simmons, where they give them a step or two to allow him to get in front of that first move. And he can't like change pace, you know, a lot of charges that way. And it's more difficult to get downhill. He can just make himself be closely guarded on the perimeter with the threat of the pull-up. That's going to be more than enough to open up a lot of the stuff that he needs to do at the next level. So I don't know if he can get there. And that's definitely a question. But I think the threshold for what he needs to hit that shot at is really pretty low and pretty achievable. And um, shooting, pull-up shooting isn't the easiest thing to add, but shooting in general and recently pull-up shooting is something that guys are adding to their bags with more frequency than a lot of other stuff. Like, for example, Jabari's feel issue. It's easier to add a pull-up jumper than to become a, a high-level game processor. So that that is definitely something that I'm weighing while I am putting together a draft board. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. CJ, thank you so much for coming on and, and, and sharing some of your thoughts, not only on everything that's going on with the Sixers, but also the top end of this draft. I love when I have guests on who bring unique way or find unique ways to, to bring new points to the table and to get me to think about things and, how I have players ranked out and you have absolutely done that um, for me when we talked about some of the concerns we have with Jabari, 
uh, coming back to how Paolo ultimately processes the game, some of the the flashes that he's shown, especially over the last few weeks. Like now, now I really want to flip those two guys um, on my board, and it just makes the the race for number one so fascinating. Something that we're going to be tracking all year long. But again, thank you so much for for coming on. Just one more time, plug everything that you're doing for for my audience because you do no matter what you're doing, whether it's writing. Um, hopping on podcasts. You are doing tremendous work day in, day out, my friend. You're, you're, you're one of the best follows, and I love everything that you do. I, I appreciate that. And first of all, I really appreciate you having me on. I love getting the chance to talk hoops. Right now, I love getting the chance to talk Chet because he is a blast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can follow me at CJ Marchesani. Um, obviously, follow the guys at the Stepien. Roll Call Sports is my website. I don't break that much anymore, but we have a ton of great guys that do. Um, as far as writing, I, I am doing a lot of behind closed door stuff, so I don't get a chance to actually put my public writing out there very much anymore, but analytics stuff, I blast on my Twitter, maybe every three or four weeks, update my model. Once the season ends, there will be a ton of analytics stuff on my feed, um, that I'll, I'll be bumping my end of the end of year push, if you will. So feel free to check it out as always, uh, shoot me a DM or whatever. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk through this stuff. So yeah, thank you for having me on. No, we'll, we'll definitely be blasting and, and retweeting your stuff over here in no ceilings without a doubt, CJ. So thank you again for coming on and, and thank you everyone out there for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you aren't subscribed to this show, make sure you do so wherever you get your podcast, Apple podcast, Spotify, YouTube, make sure you follow me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Make sure you follow No Ceilings on Twitter at No Ceilings NBA and subscribe to our Substack where we're putting out written work every day, Monday through Friday, noceilings.substack.com. We would love to have you over there reading up on everything that we're doing. As CJ mentioned, the, this year we're, we're, we're fast approaching uh, an end to the year. It's the, the, Listen, the NCAA tournament's going to be here um, before we know it. So definitely make sure you're locked into all of our channels as far as draft content is concerned. All of you out there who appreciate this time of year, trust me, we have so much more planned for you in store. Later on this week, I'll be doing our dual comparisons podcast with Stephen Gillespie from Draft Capital. We'll be going over our big boards, see what happened on our latest updates. So definitely make sure you stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, thank you all again for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week.